WBZ original. Didn't you think he was like an interview? Excellent. Yeah. That segment had a WTF vibe to it. I just edited, oh, yeah. edited it this morning. It's fantastic. It was, it was I took him back to his whole career. It was great. What do you mean the WTF vibe? Like yeah, Mark Maron's. His, oh, his I got what you're WTF. saying. Okay, okay. I, I thought you were saying like yeah. a. I thought you were gonna. Like, you know, I was give, confused. Give, give me, no, yeah, no, yeah. I thought you were giving me the literal. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Season three, episode six of Studio BZ. Welcome in. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming back. If you've listened before, I'm Paula Evans. We are still in our Super Bowl parade garb. Paula has her Super Bowl champions t-shirt on. And we were, and people were in t-shirts because it was in the 60s for the parade. So we're flying high off that. (laughs) And we're going to talk a little bit about what the parade was like and the MBTA failures afterwards. Yeah, flying high to say the least. Uh, I was not at the parade because I was busy back here at the station. And uh, I'm going to be the designated podcaster today because both Paula and Liam apparently encountered a steady wafting cloud of marijuana of smoke second, while you second were working. Hand smoke. You I'm a little hungry right now, John. Well, no, they're, they're truly, you can truly tell <laughs> that marijuana has been legalized when you go to these parades. It's, it is in the air everywhere, pungent, pungent everywhere from Copley to City Hall Plaza, and you would just see these plumes of smoke go up every once in a while from certain sections of the crowd. Okay, and uh, so, it made people happy. It was a, it was a pretty calm crowd, I will say. So, folks, if you hear random, uh, inexplicable giggling during the podcast today, it's not me. All right. <laughs> well, that's normal anyway. So, here is what we are covering in this show this week: Cheryl Fiendaka. She got an exclusive interview with Brad Kassler. This is the man who was recently convicted in the Sweet Tomatoes pizza crash that killed Eleanor. Normeely and Gregory Morin. He is now in jail. She got an exclusive jailhouse interview with him. We're going to have her story for you and then talk with Cheryl about some of the behind the scenes of conducting this interview with him. What in a jail. sad story. Mm. And then uh, there's a new study out that says climate change is already taking its toll on property values here in Massachusetts, hurting Massachusetts homeowners. Uh, You spoke with a couple of experts on this, right? Mm -hmm. The two researchers who were part of this project, Columbia Researchers and with the First Street Foundation, about just how much money has been drained out of the values of coastal properties in New England. The figure will blow you away. And which towns out there you should pay attention if you live there. And then... Uh Uh-oh, get the Kleenex ready. Really... One of the best interviews I've ever been involved with, the Fonz himself, Henry Winkler, came into the station. Liam and I spoke with him on television, but we also brought him up here to the podcast studio. You did cry. Uh, Well, you know, I'm a crier. And he touches my heart. And you're going to want to hear this interview. So the Fonz apparently has not jumped the shark. He has not <laughs> jumped the shark. And as a matter of fact, talks about his connection to that phrase, which he embraces. As we were saying, Paul and I are yes. freshly back as we record this podcast Tuesday from the 12th rolling rally. Unbelievable. In 18 years. And uh, getting to and from it was a nightmare. More than a million people were expected to show up for this parade. I don't know what the final figure is going to end up being, but that's what Boston police expected. Based on the crowds we saw at City Hall Plaza, I would say certainly more than a million people along the parade route. And the MBTA, it's it's one of these things. Anytime there's a 
huge event like this. The police come out and beg you to take the tea. On a regular day, you can't rely on the MBTA. And then it starts to burst at the seams on a day like this. We had trains from Lowell that were full at the first stop. Mansfield, South Attleboro trains, all full, not stopping. Oh, that's frustrating. It it was the highest ridership ever. On the MBTA commuter rail for this parade, which says something about the passion of Patriots fans, but also says something about the fact that this is not sustainable. And then there was a derailment on the D-line as well. And, you know, not a lot of improvement because I explicitly remember this happening when David Wade and I anchored coverage of the Bruins parade, the Stanley Cup victory. Same thing. People were outraged, especially on that Attleboro line, about trains blowing past them. People that never even got in town I mean, not to, to attend or couldn't get home. Not to mention the plight of the poor folks who somehow it didn't dawn on them that this was happening and they set out on their normal commute into the city mm. and encountered the Sea of Humanity. So, I mean, here on Studio BZ, we're all about problem solving, right? Not yes, whining. we well, look the, at solutions. No, I do like whining. I actually. do like whining yeah, as well, I have fun. to admit it. <laughs> it is fun. You, you called me out on that one. But, <laughs> I mean, what what's the alternative? One idea I had, but the more I think about it, I realize it's a dumb idea, is to, you know, do it at Gillette. In other words, have a parade that perhaps moves through communities near Foxborough where there is public transportation so some fans can see them there. And then the duck boats roll through the parking lots and there is a commuter rail stop there, although Mm -hmm. I'm sure it would be swamped. And then you can get 65,000 people, probably more really, inside the stadium. Yeah, the one issue there is Route 1, even on a game day when you're talking 70 to 80,000 people is a complete nightmare if you're talking a million people mm-hmm. it's just i don't know i don't know what the solution That's why is people start tailgating there at 7 30 right. in the morning among other reasons we got to get Stephen poftak on the yeah podcast. we gotta get him this is greater boston cradle of american democracy we had a really fascinating and powerful iTeam exclusive this week. Brad Kassler, you might remember his name. He was sentenced to four years in jail recently for killing two customers after he crashed into the Sweet Tomatoes Pizza Shop in Newton. Kassler said it was an accident and that his multiple sclerosis caused him to lose control of his SUV. The jury, though, convicted him. And in his only jailhouse interview, he sat down with our chief investigator, Cheryl Fiendaka. We have her in studio now to talk about some of the behind the scenes of her reporting and being at the jail with him. I wish I had um, died back then. Not Eleanor or Greg and the families, the other people that were hurt. I can't change it. All I can do is try to move forward. And I hope for their, for their benefit that they can also. It's such a painful case, Cheryl, and You know, I think it's even hard for viewers to see him. Uh, He's clearly uh, physically deteriorated even since the beginning of this case. How is Brad Kassler assimilating in jail? How did he appear to you? Well, he's lost 14 pounds. You know, he appears to be uh, frail. He's using a walker. Um, He's 57 years old. He's had MS for 30 years. Um, and he is, you know, he's never been in jail before, like most people in these kinds of circumstances. So I think he's not in a medical unit. He's in general population. He is assimilating to what is going to be his life, really, for the next four years. I think that's part of the reason this case is so controversial. 
there we were talking about this before. You say this is such a polarizing issue. Some people say, look, he killed two people. He probably had some inkling that he shouldn't have been driving given his given his medical condition. So what was he doing? And he belongs in prison. And then other people see him and see how he's going around on a walker and think, really, does he need to be in prison for four years? What Talk about just the controversy surrounding this case. Well, the controversy surrounding the case basically is that, you know, the charges were that he that he was reckless for him to drive. It, not negligent, reckless. Um, you know, so that implies that he should have known. Um, and and the fact that he decided to take that, rest, that risk and be reckless is what the jury found to find him guilty. So I think a lot of folks look at this and think, okay, you know, he had this illness for a long time. He did testify that he's had, you know, it, with anyone with MS can probably tell you, um, you know, they have some days where they, the MS gets very bad and then they get better, And but it's a progressive illness. Um, and he said on days where he wasn't feeling well, he didn't drive, but he was driving and he never had any kind of episode or any kind of inkling that there was anything wrong in all the times that he was driving. Um, so, I, you know, so you can see that part of it. Uh, there were no skid marks. Um, there were no braking. So it, it appears from what the defense is saying is that, you know, look, he didn't react. I mean, a normal person would have tried to react. And I just think it's interesting about this case. People need to keep in their minds. I was on the anchor desk when the sentencing happened. Um, I believe you might have actually been there with me when the judge uh, sentenced him to the four years. But one of the things that she said in the guidelines for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is that she was required to take the jury's finding of guilty to award a sentence, but included in that decision is deterrence, right, to show the public that this should not happen. I think a lot of people find it hard to believe that someone with such a debilitating progressive illness would never have that conversation with the physician and he maintains the doctor never told him he couldn't drive well I think that uh, that doesn't seem that far-fetched to me you know my mom had a stroke and she was older and when we were leaving the rehab they said you know we have a program so that she can learn to drive and get you know hmm. and get back behind the wheel hmm. again and we all thought okay that's never gonna happen right. she's not gonna drive anymore but um, they do have these programs for people who have had strokes for people who have MS um, for people who have other illnesses, heart attacks, um, a lot of those folks are driving, about 130,000. That was the evidence that 30,000 of those people have MS. You know, the state is aware of that. They have placards. They have handicapped placards so that they are able to park. So you have to show that you have a, a, a medical condition that warrants giving you this. Mm-hmm. So now the state is aware but there are, there's nothing that prevents someone it's a murky from, area. Right, from driving unless they itself, you know, regulate. And I know there were some conversations you had with Kassler while you were at the jail that were not able to make TV. And in one of them, uh, you say that he talked about considering pleading guilty. And early on in the case, there in fact seemed to have been some sort of a deal. It then fell apart. And you talked to them about that process. If I plead my case because I didn't want to, um, despite counsel, my counsel's opinion that I should should not do that, because um, uh, I wanted to bring closure for everybody, the families, myself, everyone that was involved. Um, but if I had done that, uh, my mother, even though she was in hospice care, she probably would have had been put in home. He was his mom's 
caregiver. She had she was very sick. She was terminally ill, and she wanted to die at home. And so he was, you know, taking care of her at home while all this was going on. Um, and so that was a difficult decision. And he also said, you know, he made it clear to me that his lawyers were telling him that this was a triable case, and that there was, you know, that he and he honestly still feels like the MS. He still says that he had a medical episode. Something caused this to happen mm-hmm. that was unintentional, and he had he had no control over. And the victims and their families, you know, are pretty clear about the fact that they don't believe that. They think that, you know, he shouldn't have been driving and that he still refuses to take responsibility for what happened. Right. Let's let's uh, listen to this. We have this clip where he talked to you about the accident. It's a horrific tragedy. It's, just, it's there's no, you know, other way to, to put it there. Um, if I felt I was not well that day or during that day, again, um, I would I would have been off the road, but I did not get that inkling at all. I've driven that route probably 500 times, 1,000 times. I put, you know, 17, 20,000 miles a year on my car or cars. Um, and never has this happened before, ever. So did you sense real remorse from him, even though he was saying, I, I really did have the right to drive still? I did. I felt like he... Um, he definitely, you know, was remorseful and felt sad and says he's still haunted and thinks about this 24 hours a day, which, you know, when you're in jail, you don't have much to do other than think quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, so I think he understands the gravity of all of this and that, you know, the fact is that he is responsible on that level. He he was driving. Um, but he continues to maintain that he really had no indication on that day um, that he was having any kind of issues. Mm. He has MS. He's fairly disabled. We saw him during the piece walking around with a walker. What does he do in jail all day? He's been doing a lot of reading. There are a lot of courses. He's taking a writing course. Um, you know, he's just getting used to his environment. He's in general population. He is getting medical care at the facility. Um, you know, the, the, there's really not that much to do in, in jail. You know, they have a few programs for you to participate in, but the rest of it is basically your time. But he told you he actually wants to go to law school when he gets out. He does want to go to law school when he gets out. He said that, um, you know, that this whole process has piqued his interest in it. He's always kind of been interested in it. And now um, there, aren't a whole, there aren't any laws in Massachusetts for um, people who have medical conditions and what their requirements are, whether or not they have to give up their licenses or any of that. It's all basically self-regulated. I mean, you might remember there were a couple of bills proposed when we had a rash of elderly folks um, getting involved in accidents, mm-hmm. and there was some push to try to have um, an age where you would have to take another test. But that never went through. So the only thing anyone over 75 has to do is they have to appear in person to renew their license and take an eye test. Mm. But there are no requirements that you turn your license in at a certain age. So um, he wants to work on some of those issues for folks with disabilities. Do you think that he would prefer a system where people are just told concretely, you can drive, you cannot drive? And that way, if something does happen out on the roads, they're not liable. I think that would probably be best in some of these circumstances. There's no gray area then. Then you say, okay, you know, here's whatever the standard is. Um, but, you know, doctors appear to be reluctant to tell people you can't drive or you don't, we don't think you're okay to drive. Um, and so it's up to their, you know, people themselves or their families who would say, you know, I don't think this is okay for you anymore. Hmm. So where does his appeal stand now? 
Well, it probably will take at least several months, possibly a year, before he gets any kind of real review. Cheryl Fiendaka, I-Team Chief Investigator, thank you so much. It was uh, an exclusive interview, very well done, and we appreciate you chatting with us here on the Studio BZ Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Cheryl. That, friends, is the way the WBZ Studio News Department works. An alarming new study says sea level rise has massively eroded the value of coastal properties in New England, costing homeowners more than $400 million between 2005 and 2017. And Massachusetts is the hardest hit, according to this research, with almost $300 million in lost value over that time frame. So joining us now to discuss this are two of the researchers on the project, Drs. Jeremy Porter and Stephen McAlpine at Columbia University, and they are statistics statistical consultants for First Street Foundation, the nonprofit that released this study. Were you surprised by these results showing $400 million in lost value? Um, so this is Jeremy. We, we weren't that, that surprised only because this is our 14th state. Overall, we've done 14 states. Um, this was the, the last four of those 14 states, and we've seen actually much larger numbers in other locations. So we expected that, that across the eastern seaboard consistently we see the places that have increased sea level rise and increased tidal flooding events are seeing decreases in property value appreciation we weren't surprised to see the uh, the actual numbers right so let's talk about your process a little bit how you came to 400 million so did you compare coastal property values in 2005 versus 2017 and then determine that sea level rise is to blame so this is Stephen here. Uh, there's a lot of things we actually do in order to, to um, determine the impact that tidal flooding is having on home value appreciation. And it's really a two-fold process. Um, the first piece is we use uh, NOAA tide gauge data and elevation data and map out where the flooding is occurring today and how that will look in the future. And then the second piece, this is where we I think to get to the heart of your question, how do we, how do we know uh, what's happening to these home value appreciations uh, when we compare homes that are experiencing tidal flooding against those that don't. And the way we do it is we look at real market transactions uh, throughout that time period. So every home that was sold between 2005 and 2017, uh, we have the um, transaction records, the market value transaction records for them. And so what we do is we model out um, the uh, impact of tidal flooding by um, comparing homes that have tidal flooding um, against those that aren't when you hold all other things constant. Well, our models let us compare two homes uh, that are approximately the same size and, and, and approximately the same desirable, desirability of neighborhoods um, against one another, with the only difference being that one is uh, has a sea level rise related to flooding risk. And you found that in some of these cases, the properties lost half their value. They would have sold, there was one, I think, on Marginal Street in East Boston that would have sold for $800,000. That would have been the value. And instead, it's around 400000 or under. Right. Yeah. So we, we found that if you look at the actual relative lost appreciation, and then you look at the amount of flooding on the property and the amount of flooding in the roads uh, within a tenth of a mile of that of that home, that we're, we're seeing a negative impact on property value appreciation. And when we, when we end up aggregating all that with the square footage of the home, it ended up having almost over 50% mm. of the potential home value was lost in terms of relative appreciation. Right. So what specifically is draining the value? Is it flood insurance? What's causing that decline in value? What's causing it is the fact that buyers are seeing these things and it makes them less interested in these homes. Um, road flooding in particular is one of a, a very visible sign uh, that there is a, um, an undesirable 
uh, aspect related to um, the home as a negative amenity. People don't like it when there's debris on the roads, the tidal flooding impacts um, commutes, um, and it can cause damage too on the, the really extremely high tides, uh, especially with the seawater causing rust. So what's happening is people are seeing it and they're seeing it more and more, and it's making them want to live in certain places a little less. And in fact, First Street Foundation has put together a website. And for people listening, you can search on Google Flood IQ Database. And this allows you to look up a property. It can be your property. And you can get a sense of what it would be worth without the sea level rise that we're seeing and what it's worth with that sea level rise. Uh, What are some of the more extreme cases? We talked about Marginal Street in East Boston. But what are some of the other more extreme cases that you guys have seen of lost value because of sea level rise? I mean, I think there's just um, large regions too that are really being impacted, like Salisbury, um, that have the 36 million uh, for the whole region that is uh, uh, in terms of relative appreciation that's lost. So um, there's definitely these large impacts for specific homes, like another one in Salisbury that um, is currently assessed at 230,000 in value, but um, should be worth 420,000. So there's almost $200,000 in more value in Salisbury. But then, like I said before, the whole city um, is worth 36 million less than it could be in terms of home value um, just due to tidal flooding and its increasing risk. And let's talk about that because you isolated five Massachusetts communities that have been hit the hardest. You mentioned Salisbury. Also Barnstable, Saugus, Nahant, and Quincy. I think people generally are concerned about Cape Cod because of, obviously, because of its position. But what's specifically going on in those towns? Yeah, so it, it, it has a lot to do with the density of the homes, and it has to do with the location of those homes next to tidal body uh, tidal water bodies, and, and ultimately what we're seeing is places that have a higher density of homes uh, and places that are uh, topographically more at risk of experiencing tidal flooding uh, from these increased tidal events are, are quickly sort of uh, aggregating in terms of the total losses in terms of property appreciation. So it's more than just the fact that sea levels rising and tidal events are increasing, but it's also the density of infrastructure, the density of, uh, of homes and the location of those homes next to the water. In the work that you guys have done, have you worked with climate scientists to get a sense of here's where it is now and here's where it's going? In other words, might this problem accelerate exponentially or is it just kind of a gradually ticking up of, of damage? Yeah, so I'll start. We, it, it will definitely, if you look at the sea level rise curves, the sea level rise curves are not linear. They're, 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 the increase is going to be exponential. The increase is exponential. We can, we can expect that more homes are going to be flooded and the homes that are being flooded now are going to be flooded worse. So the property loss will also be exponential. We do have um, climate science partners that we're working with in terms of uh, understanding a lot of these things in more of a probabilistic nature as opposed to just the more predictable tidal flooding that we're modeling now. Just to add to what Jeremy said there too, uh, we already kind of found a point where sea level rise uh, and its acceleration started hitting home values more. And that was 2005. In a lot of places, that's where we first started seeing that sea level rise uh, related tidal flooding had uh, happened a lot in that one year and it's happened frequently since. So we've hit one kind of acceleration point where it went from not being an issue to being an issue. And then as Jeremy says, as the curves show, the water's going to keep getting higher and flooding's going to get more and more frequent. Mm-hmm. So we'll be hitting more points um, in the future. Unless more things are done in order to prepare all these homes for these uh, the impending frequency of flooding. Um, 
because it's coming. Yeah. So in terms of what's being done, uh, we can pretty much see that at the federal level, the debate is not over. Uh, There are people that do question climate science. And so the federal government under this administration isn't going to act, do anything. Uh, You know, there will be no huge effort there. So can you really do anything at the local level if you don't have the federal government in partnership addressing some of these issues? Yeah, I mean, at a local level, there's a lot uh, communities can do. Um, there's a lot individuals can do. Um, and obviously, there's stuff that is tougher to, to, to implement. But um, at an individual level, uh, a lot can be done to just uh, protect your home by uh, if you can elevate the uh, HVAC systems so they're not so exposed. Mm-hmm. You can elevate your home. You can um, set up your own seawall. Uh, at a community level, too, you can work on trying to understand which roads are at risk and they need to be elevated, elevate them, or try to put in black backflow uh, preventers to keep the, the high tides from coming up the same storm drains that's supposed to drain water out. Mm-hmm. Um, so and you can also just com- communicate with your neighbors, uh, ask them if this is an issue for them they want solved, and contact your local officials uh, and, and make clear that the importance of it, since um, it is a worthwhile investment to preserve your communities, um, particularly given the fact that this issue is not going to go away. We, we, we saw just recently those images of people in Venice, right, sitting in pizzerias up to their knees in water. They just kind of cope with it because there's no elevating any of that now. Uh, but anything people can do here. Uh, and we're, we're looking own. at Jonathan, our producer, has pulled up the map on Flood IQ database of our studio here in Boston. We're along the Charles River, and it looks like in not too many years from now, in five years from now, we will effectively be a floodplain here because the Charles River will uh, start to flood a bit. Um, what, what do you say to people who have these coastal properties and, uh, you know, we're sta- our station is here. We're not going to move. Uh, <laughs> right. What, do we, what, what is to be done? Well, one of the reasons why we we undertook the research to begin with was that most of the the, the research in the area has been fairly crude in the sense that it looks at what's going to happen when sea level rises one, two, three, four feet, and it looks a lot of that's forward facing, and and people sort of dismiss things that are 30, 40 years out as something that's not going to affect them. So we are are sort of leading back to your last question. You know, there's there there are climate deniers and there are people that that believe that this is this is is occurring. We can't argue with the fact that the tide gauges are saying that there's more water in the streets and mm. the water's higher. We we sort of undertook this research as a way to inform people that this is an issue, is an issue that's occurring now. And by linking it back to home home values, we we uh, attempted to, to communicate this to people in a way that seems to be effective. People are actually responding to their own properties. Again, $400 million in lost value over a 12-year span for New England coastal properties. Dr. Jeremy Porter and Dr. Stephen McAlpine uh, with First Street Foundation and Columbia University. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having us on. You've made us tremendously nervous, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Our city is truly the hub, the hub of the universe. One of our great Assignment editors here at WBZ, Jody Parrish, mm. um, picked up on the fact that Henry Winkler was out on a book tour for the his Fonz. new book, The Fonz, hey, and that he was hey. going to be doing a book signing in Plainville, I believe. And so she set him up to come in to talk about his books. Henry Winkler, 
uh, has dyslexia. Always has, but it wasn't diagnosed till he was 31. His You'll hear him talk about oldest that. son yeah. was diagnosed, he and he goes, well, wait, story. that describes my symptoms, my learning disability, and realized he has dyslexia after all these years. Wow. So he talks about his challenges as a child and his acting career, which now spans from Happy Days through the current Barry on HBO, for which he won an Emmy Award last year. His first Emmy, I think. He was an enormous cultural figure. Mm. And so it was really interesting to talk to him now as he looks back, educated here at Emerson College in right. Boston, by the way. We got to interview him in the lobby here at WBZ oh. for TV. And then you, Paula, brought him yeah. up here to the podcast studio to talk to him more at length. But the minute he walked into the lobby, first of all, the lobby was packed. People with appeared people out of everywhere. I have never even seen. I don't even know if these were WBZ employees. There's <laughs> they just people were. there to see the Fonz. He's this cultural phenomenon they for came people out of, of a certain offices. age. And he was the nicest guy you could ever imagine. He sits down. First of all, he thanks us profusely for agreeing to interview him and help him promote this new children's book, which to Paula and me was like, uh, well, Complete sure, no we brainer. absolutely are happy to have you. And then he sits and he has this very funny way about him. And he sits in his chair and he goes, ah, now I feel settled. I feel settled, Paula and Liam. <laughs> I just I came from the airport and now I'm settled. Yeah. And then he looks at Paula and he goes, can I tell you one thing, Paula? You are ageless. Ageless. <laughs> he was very The Fawn still has it. Wow, the sure Fawn does. Still the Fawn is it. still a charmer. 73. I wonder, I wonder if he can still hip check a jukebox <laughs> and get it to turn on. But really, he was everything you would hope he would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Truly a gentleman. Here's Paula's interview. Well, it's a pleasure to have Henry Winkler and his co-author, Lynn Oliver, here in the Studio BZ podcast to talk about your latest book. Uh, And this book is very important, called Everybody is Somebody. This is the, which number in the The series? The 29th. The 29th Hank Zipser novel. And you've decided this will be the last. This is the last, yeah. What was the initial concept? Because you didn't realize that you ha- that you have dyslexia till you were 31 years yes, old. Yes, that is true. I I uh, somebody by the name of Alan said to me, "Hey, why don't you write books for children about your learning challenge?" I said because I could never write a book. He said, "I'll introduce you to Lynn Oliver. She knows everything about children's literature." I said, "Okay, we had lunch. Uh, we hatched Hank Zipser. And the concept was my life, my emotional life as a an eight, nine, ten year old, not achieving, trying to figure it out, not knowing what was going on, with a sense of humor. So, no, you grew up in New York City. I did in Manhattan. In right? Manhattan, what did your parents do? My father was uh, bought and sold lumber, hmm. wood, mm-hmm. and he wanted me to buy and sell wood. He wanted you in the business. Yeah, and the only wood I was interested in was Hollywood. <laughs> and did you have older siblings? I had a, an older sister. And were you uh, being she, compared to her? No, uh, because you know what, we were both learning challenged, not knowing it. Uh, and so, no, I was not compared to her because uh, in the uh, the uh, Western European family, boys were always treated differently than girls. Oh, yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> in Irish families yeah. especially. Yeah. I can attest to that. Absolutely. Um, and Lynn, t- within children's literature, 
when you tackle a subject like this and you're trying to really get into the minds of children, they don't necessarily know who Henry Winkler is, but their parents do. That's right, but the story is really a universal story because one in five kids in America has some kind of learning challenge. And so if it's not your family, it's the family next door, and if it's not them, it's the family next door to them. So really, it, even though the inspiration was Henry's story, the story we're telling is about a kid who's smart and resourceful and funny and handsome and popular. He just stinks at school. Mm. And, and the message really is... It's not you, that it's not necessarily, and children just don't feel. Right. Power. How you learn is because of the wiring in your brain, and it's hereditary. It's passed on. So how you learn has nothing to do with how fantastic you are in this world and what the contribution that you can make to the world. It's so hard. I have four children. And as they're going through school, uh, the academic world is all they are immersed in. Right. right? They don't realize yet that some right. people excel in the academic environment, but they might go on later to excel at other things. That's a hard message to ex- abstract thought to when, explain when to a child. When we talk to children everywhere um, in, in this country, and you say to 500 kids sitting on their bottoms uh, uh, in the uh, multipurpose room, and you say, anybody know what they're great at? Every child knows what they're great at. One child says, I'm great at making friends. I'm great at soccer. One child said, I'm great at logarithms. I said, hey, that makes one of us. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so they have that innate sense, and it, they can feel defeated as school goes on. And they right? do, and your, your self-image drops to the bottom of the ocean like a stone. Mm. We're talking as much to their parents and their teachers because parents want their children to achieve, and typically they want them to achieve in traditional ways. And our society is very focused on test scores Mm -hmm. and colleges and where you're going to school and what your achievements are. And so we have to learn to celebrate differences, not to judge people who are not going the traditional way. What do we say if they don't do well? Yeah, what what we say to people is if your child has problems reading or in math, don't get them a reading or a math tutor. Get them an art teacher. Mm. In other words, try to find what their special skill is, where they're going to excel, what's going to mean something to them in the world, and and teach to their strengths. Children are such an extension of the ego. Yes. That is so it's true. so hard for parents to accept that. And that, really is a, that is a very big problem because uh, I have we've gone into schools where I, yesterday we met a little boy uh, in San Francisco who just found out that he was dyslexic. I think he is uh, nine years old. And his mother was distraught that he could not stay in the school she thought was the one. Sure. Now, it's not this little boy's fault. And the little boy feels bad enough. Then you put that pressure on them. Right. What Stacy and I, my wife and I, had always said to our children, I don't care. We don't care what you come home with in grades. As long as you tried as hard as you could, one is a teacher, one of our children is a director, just finished his third, um, uh, right here in Fall River, he just directed his third movie in Fall River, and one is in business. Yeah, my parents said the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is hard, I think, in um, 
uh, areas of the country like San Francisco, like Boston, Los Angeles, where there are great academic institutions all around, right. and school is a big deal. Right. And that also, pressure is there. People don't necessarily understand this is your brain. This is the way you learn. So mm. people say to us all the time, what's the cure? How do we help them get mm -hmm. over this? And so you have to understand that it's not something you get over, it's something you negotiate. That you'll find out how you learn best, and our job as adults is to help kids find that out and to provide activities and material that's gonna help them learn the way they learn, not the way we think they learn. Um, let's talk about how, because Boston was a big part of your young Very life. Very important part. You talk about how excited you were to be accepted to Emerson College. I, I applied to 28 schools. I got into two. Wow. One, I've never met anybody who actually went there, and the other was Emerson. And so I spent four extraordinary years in this incredible city. What years I, were those? 63 to uh, 67. Boston was a very different place. A very different place, but still had great pizza at Regina's. <laughs> Pizzeria Regina never changes. No. What would you say you took from Emerson that has influenced your life and your career the most? One, that I was able to graduate, that I actually worked my way through it. Uh, two, that the city is large enough to learn your independence and small enough to make your own so that I felt comfortable. I was not overwhelmed. Uh, and the, the amount of students here, mm. it, I always thought of it as a caboose. <laughs> And that at, in the summertime, uh, the caboose just emptied out. Yes, you know, all these thousands and thousands of kids went home. Uh, I, I, I am indebted to Boston. Yeah, it, it is true. I think New York, for a lot of young people at that age, can be overwhelming. Yeah. Boston is a great size. Great. To go to school in. And, and not long thereafter, by the time you were 27, you get the break of your life. Unbelievable. I went to Hollywood. I made enough money making commercials to go for one month. And at the end of that month, on my birthday, in uh, 1973, I got the Fonz. Six lines, um, I had one day of work. Uh, I was so duty-bound that uh, the, the other four days of the week, I would sit in my apartment because you can't go and have fun right. on a work day. Right. So I would just sit waiting to be called to go to work. And then eventually the character grew and I worked every day. Yeah. It's so interesting because I've listened to past interviews with Gary Marshall. Yeah. And that first year, my when dog. you think about what a different world that was, the Fonz had like a khaki cloth jacket. It's true. It's right, really Right, because they hard. wouldn't let you wear black leather? It was a McGregor golf jacket. <laughs> and I'm telling you, the collar wouldn't stay up. We used wire. We did everything. It just kind of drooped. Yeah. And so, you know, it's hard to be cool in a droopy jacket. <laughs> and it was a little too preppy. Yeah. Right? It was a little and too... And then finally, ABC let me wear leather wow. when I was in a scene with my motorcycle. With the motorcycle. Yes. That was what made it okay. And so Gary called the writer's room and he said from ABC, said, hey, they said he could be in leather with his bike. Never write another scene without his bike. And... There you go. And now it's in the Smithsonian. We've been talking and I've been saying I am a child of the mid to late 70s. And in my mind's eye, 
Everything in that time period was Star Wars and the Fonz. Yeah. You were an enormous cultural influence when there are only three networks. Right. Children are only watching a certain number of shows. Yes. And you had this enormous influence. But when you look back at Happy Days, it was a very family-oriented, innocent portrayal of America. Right. The men who are in charge. Everything, everywhere starts with the people at the head. You know, Gary Marshall, Tom Miller, and Eddie Milkus, they formed the, um, the culture yeah. of Happy Days and the emotion of Happy Days. Mm-hmm. And so they were not afraid. Oh, what we got letters, actually, from uh, a school uh, for children uh, who were incarcerated. And they said, these kids love the Fonz, but they will not show any emotion could you have the Fonz show emotion? And that's when I was in the hospital room and cried over Richie talking to God saying, you know, if you make him better, I'll make a deal with you. Yeah. In those years after Happy Days, yes. was it hard? Was it hard to not be the Fonz all of a sudden? It was so difficult to get acting work because everybody said, oh, he is so funny, so talented, but he was the Fonz. Mm. So that's when, when I started. When you're that iconic, it's, it's I, hard I, to move and, on. And I could not get hired. So that's when I became a producer and a director. Ever since, people know you from uh, quirky characters. Yes, that you is know, true. Water Boy and Scream. Arrested Development. Right. And now Barry, now which you're Barry. doing with Bill Hader. What's the joy of doing a character like this at this point in your career? I was 27 when I got the Fonz. And I talked at that time about that my career was a sapling, and I planted a small tree. And I wanted to grow and grow and grow until I couldn't do it anymore. Hmm. So that was 27. And at 72, I got Gene Cousineau on Barry on HBO. And I'm still doing it. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And he's just an unbelievable character. Thank you. Just so Every, I, I had funny. a lot of those teachers. They, it's a combination yeah. at Emerson of people and then at the Yale Drama School. So there, there are some Emerson teachers folded into that oh character. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes, indeed. Teaching the acting class. Yeah. <laughs> at that time. Um, one thing that you commented on downstairs that I thought of is you're always a professional. And you learned that from Ron Howard. From Ron Howard. Uh, uh, And the dyslexia played a role sort of in your reading the script and the way you reacted to one scene. Right. And, and, uh, you know, we were doing a scene, one of the very first scenes ever. Now, I'm 27 and Ron is 18. So, and he is the star of the show. And, you know, I'm very emotional and I started hitting my script. I didn't like the joke. And he put his arm around me. And walked me to the back of the soundstage, uh, stage uh, 24 on Paramount Lot. And he said, you know, we probably wouldn't, we shouldn't hit the script. The writers are working as hard as they can. I said, Ron, I will never hit my script as long as I live. Again. He was wise 
and I was an idiot. Well, it's fascinating because he had been a little boy on the Andy Griffith show. Right. He was sort of the seasoned veteran at 18. He was. And you were the rookie. Right. And his parents were both actors. They, they, were, they left the, the farm in Oklahoma. They drove to New York. His dad was in the original Mr. Roberts. They came to California. And they did not let him be anything less than a professional on set starting at three. He was not treated differently. He could not. uh, He had no attitude, no affect. He had good parents. He was amazing. Can I ask you one question about, because I've heard you joke about it yourself. Yes. What does it feel like to be associated with a cultural phrase that people use? Jump the shark. Like jump the shark. Okay, so first of all, I'm very proud because I am the only actor who has jumped the shark twice. (laughs) Sorry. We should back up and say that there was a late in the series episode of Happy Days where the family went to Hawaii? No, uh, Hollywood. Hollywood. Yes, because Ron was going to be a reporter. That's right. And And there was some sort of uh, conflict on the beach. And I was going to solve it. Uh, I was going to save um, Potsy and Richie if... I jumped the shark on water skis. Don't you have the leather jacket on, too? I had a leather jacket on. They ripped out the lining <laughs> so that it would be easier. My father had told me for years, tell, um, tell Gary Marshall you water ski. I don't think so, Dad. No, no, take him cake and also say that you water ski. I don't think I'm going to do that. So one day I it's said, a talent. my father has told me to tell you I water ski. I've done it. Dad, I did it. Boom. Done. All of a sudden, the Fonz is water skiing and jumping a shark uh, years later Off on Arrested ramp. Development yeah. on the dock. I jumped the shark <laughs> in order to go and get a soda. So it's become the phrase for something that was at its pinnacle and has now stayed at the fair too long. Except that we were number one for the next four or five years (laughs) after that. It never stopped. It didn't really... So it doesn't bother you? No, it does not. And not only that, but at that time there were newspapers. So people actually read newspapers, (laughs) you know. And every time they mentioned Jump the Shark, they had a picture of me water skiing. (laughs) And I had, I, I would have to say... Really good legs. Well, so it if never you bothered me. Do say so me. yourself. Yes, if I say so myself. <laughs> um, would you read the end of the book sure. for us? So the last, let you go. the last um, uh, novel of Here's Hank um, of Hank Zipser is Everybody Is Somebody, because I would lie in bed like so many children did and do, thinking. I'm not good at anything. I'm failing at everything. I'm good at lunch, but that's not, uh, no one is, is, is really excited about that. I want to be somebody. So this is um, an adventure where he finally gets his picture on the bulletin board of his school in the hallway. And he gets there up and down all around. It is a crazy adventure. And it is, he's in bed at the end of the day. My mom pushed the door open. He came, she came in and sat down on the edge of my bed, tucking the covers under my chin like she used to do when I was little. I'm not little anymore. I'm in second grade. You should feel great right now, she said. I do, Mom. I do. 
Can you believe I've got my picture hanging on the bulletin board in the hallway of PS87? I never thought that would happen. But you see, honey, it did. Everything you do, Hank, you do in your own way. That's a gift. I know, Mom, but a lot of times that gift gets me into so much trouble. You're special, Hank. Never forget that. She gave me a kiss on my forehead, and she left the room, and I felt my eyes get very heavy. The rest of me felt great. And the last thought I had before I drifted off to sleep was, Hank Zipser, someday you're going to be somebody. Henry Winkler, you're a national treasure. Thank you. Wow. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. I feel great. Beautiful. And Lynn? I am. I am. It's the unexpected. It's not knowing what's going to happen. That's the problem. Uh, Last year, we lost our video. Here we go. This is absolutely outrageous. This is a study from WalletHub declaring Pittsburgh as the number one football city in America. (laughs) This is the the methodology. (laughs) The site compared more than 200 cities based on relevant metrics. The idea was to take cities that had at least one professional or at least one Division I college football team. The cities were then graded on the various metrics and were assigned a score. Pittsburgh scored a total of 63.49. Boston, second on the list, total score of 55.24. Green Bay, Dallas, and New York rounded out the top five. So college makes Pittsburgh edge us out? Is that what they're saying? No, I, well, I I mean, I don't think Pitt is much of a a draw. Maybe they're pulling in Penn State, too. I don't know. But either way, it's outrageous. Of course yeah, it's P- outrageous. Pittsburgh, well, the Steelers this are... This is one of these, it is real clickbait, well, don't you think? first of all, let's call BS on all of these <laughs> clickbait web yeah. surveys. Yes, I mean, of course. I like the ones where they run the map yeah. of the 50 states, and it's the, you know, the favorite food in every state. It's different for the Super Bowl. And, you know, it was yeah. absurd. Yeah, what was it, Massachusetts? Massachusetts was a, was a gluten-free pet pretzel. Yeah, I, and Maine was oh, like, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. what was Maine? Gluten-free pretzels. Maine was paella. paella. I'm not even kidding. Maine was paella. I That's laughed out loud know. when That's I saw that. Ridiculous. I wouldn't eat paella I mean, in Maine. <laughs> Although I guess they are known for seafood, but I mean, they, come, on. come on, you know, Please. that's a, that's a Spanish I mean, dish. And when I go to Rhode Island, I see people eating Dell's frozen lemonade. I mm-hmm. see them eating clam cakes, sure, cohogs, sure. but no poutine. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the methodology because I got lost in the, the, the and methodology early, is the methodology really of this study. That's, or in other words, term. here here's here are the various scores, uh, the number of NFL teams. So we're even with Pittsburgh on that. Yeah. Uh, performance level of the NFL team. Uh, them away. Yeah. Number of NFL championship wins were tied with the Steelers, although most of the Steelers came in the 70s. Who cares? What have you done True. for me lately? A Patriots win there. Number of NFL division championship wins, we blow them out of the water Over. there. Number of Hall of Fame head coaches, uh, we've got Parcells and Belichick. Uh, who do the Steelers have as far as NFL? Well, Chuck Knoll. Chuck Knoll. And then so, um, the, the guy who's on the uh, on on TV every weekend, uh, uh, what's his name? Oh, Cower, so Bill yeah, Cower. Is Cower a Hall of Fame coach? I probably. I think he's he only is. won the one probably. championship though. Uh, I don't know. Uh, so maybe they, they have had stability. They so have. maybe they're tied. Right. Certainly, yeah. Franchise value, where the the oh, the Patriots are the number two most valuable sports franchise in oh, the country after Dallas, right? Uh, after Dallas, yes. so we blow them out of the water. Water there. Average ticket price for an NFL game. Patriots are much more expensive. I don't know why that's a good thing, but they're more expensive. NFL fan engagement. Blow them away. 
again, number of coaches in the past 10 seasons. We beat them on that metric. NFL stadium capacity. I honestly don't Maybe know. I think bigger, Gillette might be knows? bigger than, than the Steelers stadium. Uh, attendance. Again, I got to think the Patriots outdo the, the Steelers there. Especially Popularity the index. What, does that mean within you know, the city is, or does that mean nationally? Don't you think their metrics are a little uh, antique? I like the metrics. Them. I just would say we beat them at every one. Right. I have no but, but idea but how. As you say, they're relying on their numbers from the 70s and whatnot. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, think, I think you hit the nail on the head, Paula. It's, it's college. It's the it local is. colleges. Well, Pitt, that is yeah. what yeah. makes them Looking football. The Pitt, Penn State, right? They met, yeah, they, they rank number 13 on college football. Mm. Um, and, and yeah. we don't have we much are of not a, a college football no, no, town. No, no, no. Boston is good, College but hangs in this is, there. But this but, is crazy. To me, but, you have you have professional sports cities and you have college sports cities, yeah. and you have to separate them when you're measuring them. Look, step back, youngsters, and let Grandpa <laughs> preach for a second here. <laughs> sometimes, Keller. sometimes mm-hmm. in life. You just got to be magnanimous. It's true. And let the dog have a table scrap. Okay? <laughs> I mean, what let else them have roll, they... Let them roll college in if it makes them What else them have they better. got in Pittsburgh? <laughs> All right. The, so they've got the the Penguins. They occasionally yeah, the Penguins win a sure. cup. They're, yeah. they're competitive. All right, fine. No pro basketball. Sure. Uh, they've yeah. got the, the Pirates are a perennial doormat, although they've been relatively competitive lately, but it's been forever since they've won. The Steelers are a vaunted franchise. Their fans are very loyal. I give them a the lot of credit. The terrible towel. Yeah, all and all that stuff. I'm sorry that their uh, their current team just doesn't seem to cut it year mm-hmm. after year after year mm-hmm. after year after year. But I hear it's a lovely city. There's a lot of arts and and good eating there. They got the Warhol Museum. Let's let's let them have this tiny this pathetic bowl. I would say this is a surprising turn that at this table the three of us, John right. is the generous he's, one right now, and you gracious. and I are the jerks. Well, the, and this gracious. makes me feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, this is your whole worldview. <laughs> the axis is on a tilt. If you don't like it, you can lump it, take it down the road, and dump it, like my <laughs> grandma always used to say. <laughs> All right. So, hey, this was a great show. Yeah. We're on a roll here, and so we hope you're telling your friends that you give us a rating and a review. Subscribe and share at Studio BZ Pod. My Twitter handle is at Paula Evan WBZ. We should point out some of our last uh, few episodes have been really uh, downloaded and people are starting to get the message about Studio BZ and that is really good news. So tell your friend and subscribe and we come out just about every Wednesday so you can kind of set your calendar to that and have a listen on your long commute in and out of the city, whether it's on the uh, MBTA that's breaking down or the highways that are always too packed. That's right. I am at Liam WBZ. And I'm at Keller at Large and on either of our Twitter feeds or on the Studio BZ pod, weigh in. Let us know you want us to take on a certain topic. You want to hear less of, let's say, Liam and Paulo and more of that, <laughs> that John Keller. Whatever, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. And uh, we appreciate you listening. And uh, we will close with our weekly promise. We'll, we'll be, be seeing, seeing you. you. I'm glad you brought up the Warhol Museum. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, not gonna, supposed to be a nice I'm actually planning a trip a weekend in Yeah. Pittsburgh.